Extraordinary Districts, a podcast series from the Education Trust that investigates what ordinary school districts do to get extraordinary results. Today, Secrets of a High-Performing District. Hi, I'm Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all students can achieve at high levels no matter what their background, so we're visiting school districts where that's actually happening. We want to see how they do it to see if they have lessons for others. In our last episode, I explained that we're using an analysis done by a team of researchers led by Sean Reardon at Stanford University. To listen to the last episode or to find links to the research itself, go to www.edtrust.org slash extraordinary districts. One of the things Reardon found was that in general, high-performing districts tend to have very large achievement gaps between groups. In this episode, we will go to a district that doesn't fit that pattern, Lexington, Massachusetts. The first thing to know is that Lexington tops the country in terms of academic achievement. According to Reardon's analysis, the average student at Lexington's elementary and middle schools scores a whopping 3.8 grade levels above the national average. That puts the district quite a bit ahead of even its closest rivals. The question we will be exploring in this three-part episode is how it got to be that successful, because 10 years ago, Lexington wasn't at the top of Massachusetts, much less the nation. It's not that Lexington was doing particularly badly 10 years ago. In fact, to most people, it seemed to be doing fine. But back then, it fit the pattern that Reardon identified. That is, the relatively high average performance of students in Lexington hid the fact that some groups of students weren't doing as well. In this first part, we're going to explore how administrators in Lexington discovered low performers in an otherwise high-performing district. Then, in our next segment... We're going to learn about what Lexington did in response. In the third segment, we'll see how Lexington's efforts propelled the district into the stratosphere of academic achievement. So let me first describe Lexington. Lexington is one part of the duo we know from the history books as Lexington and Concord, site of the first battle of the American Revolution, which is to say Lexington is one of America's oldest towns. It's in Massachusetts, which is the highest-performing state in the country, whether you look at national or even international assessments. That doesn't mean that every district and town in Massachusetts is doing well, but in general, districts in Massachusetts are doing better than in other states. In addition to being old, Lexington is wealthy. It's not the wealthiest town in the country by a long shot, but it's definitely up there. Later, we will visit much more hard-scrabble districts, I would say they long for the kind of financial security Lexington exudes. In the 1960s, people called Lexington Lily White. That might still be a more or less accurate description, except for the immigration of families of Indian origin. About one-third of Lexington's residents are now characterized by the U.S. Census as Asian. Within just a few miles, you can find Harvard, MIT, Wellesley, Brandeis, and many other colleges and universities, some of whose professors live in Lexington and send their children to the public schools. So, with about 6,700 students, most of whom are either white or Asian, some of whose parents are 
literally rocket scientists, it would be surprising if Lexington's schools were not high-performing. But that's not all there is to know. Here I'm going to bring in someone who knows the Lexington school system as well as anyone. My, my name is Paul Ash. It's a pleasure to be here today. I recently retired in 2015 as the superintendent of schools in Lexington, Massachusetts. I was uh, superintendent there from 2005 to 2015. I met Dr. Ash in a conference room at Lexington's town hall, and I asked him why the rest of us should pay attention to a wealthy, high-performing district. There are many schools in America that I would say in the top 75% and above in terms of wealth that look fine when you fly over them at 30,000 feet. But if you then dig down into the data, you'll find out there are large chunks of kids who could be performing at a lot higher level. So we do hear a lot of discussion in America about the poverty schools and, you know, and the schools and the rural schools. All that's very important. But we also have schools that's in the top quartile financially. And, and is my view, the vast majority of them are not doing nearly as well. In fact, I would say almost all of them are not doing nearly as well as they could be doing. That's the piece that I sort of bring to this conversation because I want all kids in America to have high levels of education. And it's too easy to sort of dismiss, well, you're rich, you've got money there, you've got no problem. They're all Americans. So one thing to know is that the Lexington School Committee, that's what they call school boards in Massachusetts, had a very specific problem in mind when they hired Dr. Ash, and it wasn't about academic achievement. They didn't hire me to be an educational turnaround super. I don't think they recognized the they did not recognize the depth of their, their educational problems because our kids here are so bright and the parents are going to tutor the kids like crazy. So why did they hire him? I was hired to fix a broken administration. And when he says broken, he means broken. I was hired by the oh, just a wonderful school committee. First of all, they were very glad I took the job because they had five superintendents in seven years. What I left out was the entire central office had collapsed. So I knew when I was hired in February of 2005, with the exception of 1.4 administrator uh, in the central office, all the others had left or were going to be leaving by July 1. That became the, fo the focus of my first year was, I got to fix this budget. Then we had major problems in our buildings, physical problems in our buildings that weren't attended for 10, for 10 years. And we hadn't done a curriculum review in 10 years. When I tell you that the central office had collapsed, I'm understating the depth of the problem. So Ash was very busy that first year or so, hiring principals and central office staff and setting up some of the basic management structures of a school district, a budget, a curriculum review process, all that kind of thing. But then he stumbled onto the secret of Lexington. To understand the secret, you have to know that Lexington participates in the longest-running voluntary desegregation program in the country known as METCO. METCO stands for Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity. Since the 1960s, thousands of mostly African-American and Hispanic students from Boston have traveled to Lexington and 34 other mostly white, mostly wealthy school districts. Some students travel as much as two and a half hours a day. The state provides most of the funds for the program, which has generally been regarded as successful. Most analyses have found that students participating in METCO graduate at higher rates and generally do better than the students they leave behind in Boston schools. And METCO has provided an important way for both Boston and suburban students to get to know other children who live in different circumstances. Over the years, the program has provided white, black, Hispanic, and Asian students a richer and more interesting education. To see a new documentary on METCO, go to our website, 
www.edtrust.org slash extraordinary districts. The film details some of the history and has lots of interviews with former and current students, both from Lexington and Boston. So the program is generally considered a great success. But there's a secret about the experience of METCO students, and I'm going to go back to Paul Ash now so he can tell you about when he learned that secret. So I was still learning, you know, somewhere 30 years into the job in, in administration about what do you actually do. And then, then what happens in life is an event happens. And the event was the head of the program called METCO in Lexington, which is a, the longest-standing desegre- voluntary desegregation program in America um, that brings 250 students, mostly African-American students, to Lexington, was in my office and I asked the question, I said, by the way, what percentage of our Boston students coming out to Lexington are in special ed? And she told me 49%. And I was just, just my jaw was almost on the floor because the typical percent at the high school level was around 15%, 16%. And I asked her, I said, do you really believe that three times the number of Boston students are disabled than the resident population? And I was quite intentional about using the word disabled because it is a disability law. She says, no, no, they're not disabled. So that began a conversation about, well, how did this happen, that we had triple the number of African-American students in special education in the high school than the resident population? And that opened up to me a whole area of analysis I was not even thinking about in a community that deeply cared about all of its students and anti-racism programs was inherently racist. It was, it was institutional racism, but with no ill intent. So we're going to come back to this question, but note what he said. It was institutional racism, but with no ill intent. Just hold that thought, and let's go back to what Ash did next. And we looked at what happened. Half the students ended up in special education in grade K or 1 because they couldn't read well, or they were acting out. They didn't have a disability. Well, you can just imagine if you're put into special education at a very early age and you don't have a disability, you actually end up with a worse education because you're not in the classroom getting the regular instruction when you're being pulled out. I mean, it was sort of awful. So here he is, superintendent of a wealthy, high-performing school system, and he has stumbled onto evidence that the African-American and Hispanic students who travel hours every day to go to the schools he is in charge of were being wrongly identified as having disabilities. So what does he do? So I had this opportunity to pull the union president, Vito Lamura, who really cared a lot about social issues, and I, as a team, to say, let's really analyze this. What's going on? What's the data? Vito Lamora was a middle school social studies teacher who was the president of the Lexington Education Association, the teachers' union in Lexington. For years, he had been frustrated by the poor performance of the African-American and Hispanic students coming into Lexington under the METCO program. He jumped at the chance to partner with the superintendent. Lamora was retiring, but he had three months left on the payroll. Often what that means is that the central office will assign the retiree to a project, and Superintendent Ash had just the project for him. Lay out the data, interview teachers, parents, and students, and help clarify the full extent of the problem. That led to a 60-page report that's known in Lexington as the Lamora Report. The Lamora Report laid out a pretty awful set of facts. More than half of African-American elementary school students in Lexington were below proficient in English language arts on the state assessment, and a whopping two-thirds were below proficient in math. This compared to between 8 and 20 percent for Asians and whites, depending on the subject and group. 
Some of the students coming in from Boston were behind when they arrived. For one thing, many hadn't had the same kinds of preschool experiences as their peers, but many other students came into kindergarten right where they should have been, and they lost ground through the years. All in all, METCO students in Lexington may have been doing better than their counterparts in Boston, but not by much. Here's Paul Ash again, talking about the report Lamora wrote. But the bottom line is our students were not doing nearly as well as I thought. We broadened that study, and we looked at the communities around us, and they all had the same problem, which sort of brings me to, so what has a superintendent from a wealthy community got to do with this topic? My conclusion is that in all of the communities in the Boston area that are the upper-middle-class communities, they all had, in my judgment, weak performance for our special ed students, students of color, low-income, and English language learner students. I'll call them bottom 25%. And there was no pressure in our communities really to do very much about that. By that, he means that all the towns that received METCO students were, on the whole, very high-performing, like Lexington. It seemed to Ash that their officials had a sense of complacency about the fact that METCO students didn't do particularly well on state assessments. They seemed to think that was just the way things were. But Ash didn't see it that way. For me, it was, it was a moral imperative that drove me. And I said, you know something? Not only are we going to fix this problem, but what it then turned into was, if we're going to fix the problem for the students who struggle, many of the things we're talking about is good for all kids. So then it became... If we really change the system, we're going to help all kids achieve at higher levels, not just the weaker students. And ultimately, that's what happened over a seven, eight-year period. That is to say, by 2014, the gaps in proficiency at the high school level closed on the state assessment, known as MCAS. I'll let him tell you more, but as background, you should know that since 2003, Massachusetts has required high school students to pass MCAS in order to graduate. They give the MCAS graduation test first to 10th graders, and those who don't pass have two additional years to pass. But passing in 10th grade has become an important milestone both for students and schools. 100% of our grade 10 students for three years in a row were proficient and advanced in English language arts. That's including all the subgroups. Um, and 96% of our students were proficient and advanced in mathematics, including all the subgroups. As Ash saw it, Lexington had not only closed the achievement gap, but improved the achievement of all groups of students. Now, the educators listening will know that this is a huge deal. Few districts can claim to have closed the achievement gap between white and Asian students on the one hand and African-American and Hispanic students on the other. In fact, many educators have kind of given up and say it simply can't be done. Ash was convinced that what Lexington had done was important and that it held lessons for other educators. He was so convinced that he went to a researcher who has spent decades researching and documenting the achievement gap, Ron Ferguson. Ash asked Ferguson to take a magnifying lens to Lexington's achievement. Dr. Ferguson is an MIT-trained economist at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University and directs Harvard's Achievement Gap Initiative. It's safe to say he has dedicated his professional life to figuring out how to close achievement gaps. So what was Ferguson's reaction when Paul Ash went to ask him to write a report on Lexington's story? I just didn't believe him. Ferguson's trained to be skeptical, and he's seen a lot of people make a lot of claims that end up being unwarranted, particularly about closing the achievement gap. Ash was persistent, but Ferguson remained skeptical. 
I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll look into it if you want, but I know if I'm going to write something, I'm going to have to write what I see. I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat it. It's not going to be a, you know, a marketing piece. And he said, look, he said, I'll tell you whatever you want. I'll open the books to you. Uh, if you want to be skeptical, if you want to discover something and tell me I'm wrong, then come on out, discover it, and tell me I'm wrong. But I want you to look at it. Ferguson and his team looked closely at the data. He was correct. They had closed the proficiency gap. They had pretty much 100% proficiency among their 10th graders, among uh, their black students. They had also done pretty well with their growth scores. And you look across the year, the patterns all look good. They had not closed the achievement gap the way I think about it, because their scores are still different. If you look at the percentage of kids who reached advanced status, there was still clearly a difference. But they had made a lot of progress. And it turned out that that progress is not only for their students of color, it was across the board. All the groups had kind of risen up over time. And we start looking at multiple measures and say, well, is it, do we just see it in the MCAS measures? No, we actually saw it in the SAT scores too. And we also saw, I, I tracked a cohort that was fifth graders, maybe when they really got rolling and started this. And you saw gradually how that cohort of black kids moved up in the ranking uh, year by year compared to other black kids in the rest of the state until they got to 10th grade. So in each of the ways that I looked at the data to ask, had there been progress here, I saw the progress. Ferguson won't say Lexington has completely closed achievement gaps because there are still gaps at the advanced level. But those gaps, too, have narrowed significantly. I think my skepticism was partly warranted because they had not closed the gap in the way I thought of the gap. But his pride was also warranted. They had also made huge progress. And by his measure, by the proficiency uh, metric, they had closed the gap. So let's sum up the story so far. We have a wealthy, mostly white and Asian school district that had gone along for years, not officially noticing that the mostly African-American and Hispanic students who traveled into their district as part of a desegregation program were not doing well academically. One day, a superintendent who was busy fixing budgets and buildings noticed that gap and decided to do something. After years of concerted effort, the district closed the proficiency gap at the high school level, as documented by one of the most respected and skeptical scholars in the country. I know educators out there have one main question. How did they do it? That's the question we'll start to tackle in part two of this three-part episode of Extraordinary Districts. Please be sure to join us. In the meantime, go to www.edtrust.org slash districts and check out all the resources we have on our podcast page, including the report that Ron Ferguson and his colleagues wrote about Lexington. I'm Karen Chenoweth with the Education Trust. See you next time. 